I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, this is Sarah Trapp. Welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm here with Esther Gallagher, my co-host, and two guests who I will introduce in a moment. And before I introduce them, I'd like to remind everyone that we have a website, which is fourthtrimesterpodcast.com. Go to fourthtrimesterpodcast.com, enter your email address, and you'll receive information from us above and beyond what you hear on the show. And also search for Fourth Trimester Podcast on Facebook and like our page, please, and join us on our group there. And anyone who is willing to sponsor us can also click on the sponsor button on fourthtrimesterpodcast.com and subscribe to pay $1 an episode, which we would greatly appreciate. So today, uh, we're going to be talking with a couple of very special guests who are here to help us out with a topic we haven't covered previously, which is all about childcare. And speaking from personal experience, um, it hits very close to home because I know as a new mom that the idea of entrusting your brand new baby with someone who you know very little in most cases, um, is hard. It's heart-wrenching to go back to work for any working parents, which is what I experienced. And that transition is tough for parents and the children as well. And so today we're going to be focused on talking about the idea of childcare and nannies and everything that that you might want to consider as a parent looking to bring someone on as a childcare partner. So I am so happy to be talking about this because this is top of mind for any parents who are, have new babies at home or who are pregnant and thinking about what they're going to do when they have to go back to work. So this is fantastic. And of course, I, I know there's tons of scenarios when you need childcare, but that's the main one that comes to mind for me. So I'm going to introduce Elise DeRozier. She's a licensed clinical social worker and the founder and managing director of Chirp Connecting Families and Nannies at LLC. For over 20 years, Chirp has helped San Francisco families find, hire, and employ nannies that are the right fit for their needs and lifestyle. In addition to her latest book, The Nanny Manual, she is the author of two previous books, Finding a Nanny for Your Child in the San Francisco Bay Area and Nannies for Modern Moms. Elise is also the founder of the nonprofit, The Institute for Families and Nannies, with the mission to educate, inform, and support the relationships between parents and nannies to further the development of young children. And for more information, you can go to the website www.tiffan.org. So welcome, Elise. Thank you. Very, very happy to be here and honored to be here, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me and also, of course, Mm Esther. We've known about each other for many, many years, have we not? Oh, so close to Esther. I was looking back, it's been... Boy, at least 15, almost 20 years. So mm-hmm. we go way back. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just really thrilled to be here with you at this time, um, in our lives and, um, be talking about all of what, of course, we know so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> and Elise, you have also brought with you, um, a 
someone to talk about their personal experience as a child care provider, Glenda Messina. Glenda, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Glenda Messina. I have over 20 years experience as a full-time nanny. Um, right now, I'm specializing in fourth trimester care, taking care of newborns. I come from a large family, and I have taken a lot of classes and think it's important for nannies to continue their education in order to serve their families well. Thanks, Glenda, for coming. You're welcome. Well, we're so happy to have both of you on the show today. And at least your book, The Nanny Manual, is a fantastic resource. Um, we've had the opportunity to have a skim through it. And uh, we certainly have some thoughts on kind of where we would like to focus today. But it just initially, it would be really great to understand in your words, what really drove you to bring this book to the public and just understand where you're coming from. Over the years of working closely with parents and and nannies, I really wanted to make sure that parents did a, gave some thought to this whole process about of hiring somebody, as you had pointed out, who is most often someone that they know very little about in order to most often return back to work or leave their child um, with this person. So um, part of this was to, again, give parents um, an appreciation for and really the time and the space to think before they start about really what does this mean to them um, and to take really even a back step and to say historically, you know, um, what, how have I as a parent or as a mother um, gotten to this point in time where making this kind of decision um, becomes part of who I am as a parent? Um, of course, I also wanted parents, um, as they started, to have the information that they need sort of in a practical, nuts and bolts kind of way about how to go through an informed process so that they wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel um, and begin the process again or to start a process and have it be so um, challenging and worrisome for them that they stop altogether or that they don't make good decisions. And then lastly, um, I really, truly wanted parents to appreciate the fact that this uh, person that they have hired um, truly is a partner with them in um, helping to raise their child. And that um, I wanted parents to both, you know, appreciate and recognize and acknowledge the nanny for the kind of um, work that she is doing, and then to really see her in a more collaborative way as a part of the team again, to support the healthy development of their children. So I wrote it with those three things in mind and, um, of course, hoping that parents do um, make use of the book in that kind of way. Why is it so hard for nannies and parents managing their relationship and also understanding the value that's being provided? Well, I think we have, certainly here in America, um, there's a lot of um, messages that we get and clearly a lot of ambivalence that is out there that doesn't make this an easy decision for parents. And of course, as a result, uh, it enters into the relationship that they create with their nanny. One of the um, biggest um, messages or the challenges that uh, parents contend with is that um, the market for nannies is 
not licensed and it's not regulated. So literally, of course, anybody can post a notice online or on a bulletin board that they want to take care of children. And parents need to be doing an informed search in order to make sure that the person has met even basic requirements. But the, at this large level, um, at the, really at the large federal government level, not having recognition that nannies are, um, to be licensed and or regulated or that they exist even at all can enter into this process for moms. You know, am I doing the right thing by my child and who am I hiring? And should I be doing this at all? And even on a social level that not recognizing nannies is doing the important work of caring for children, um, then there does send another and love a message to moms about who, what am I doing? Am I causing harm? What will be the outcome if I do hire someone? And, um, you know, am I being, am I doing right as a parent or as a mother? So these mixed messages factor into the process that moms go through to be making an informed hiring decision. And ultimately, um, it comes into the relationship that parents have with nannies that they hire. The mixed message, the ambivalence that we have in our society about nannies and about parents who hire nannies presents a challenge in and of itself. I just add <laughs> that when we live in a culture that expects all the emotional labor to be done unpaid by women, mm-hmm. um, particularly mothers, yeah. um, that we have another layer of difficulty when it comes to sorting through the social emotional, let alone the practical matters of mm-hmm. um, finding appropriate, abiding, safe childcare. Um, I'm somebody who very much identifies <laughs> with nannies and feels that, you know, the chances that you're going to encounter somebody who's willing to take good child care of your child who isn't going to do that are going to, that's going to be rare. Whether or not this is somebody with good training and good support from the culture to do her job well, assuming she's a woman, not that I should assume that, um, is a whole other layer of complication because most people who are willing to do this hard work for very little pay and no security in most situations are good people, period. They just are. Mm -hmm. And under the current administration, they're taking a huge risk being here. Many of whom have left their own children in another country in order to care for them, in order to provide financially for their families. So Mm -hmm. it's a very complicated political, social, emotional, and practical process that that usually mothers are then undertaking just so they can go back to work to support their families financially. I really like your point, Esther, just because any parents who stay at home to watch their children sometimes can suffer from self-esteem issues or any host of issues that are associated with not being valued by society for the work that they're doing for childcare. And that's the parent. So then on top of that, it's like, well, how does 
How do the childcare providers feel? Glenda, you might have some ideas on that. I do have ideas on that. Um, one of the issues that was raised earlier is regarding the communication. And one of the problems is that different people communicate in different styles. One person is a direct, another person is an indirect. And so it makes it hard for them to have a conversation. But that's one of the nice things is when you start a job is if you could discuss how and when we're going to talk about what's going on and try to stay connected with the parents so that they know what's going on and that they feel free to give their input if there's something that they think that like changed or something they would like you to work on and have a relationship so that they can feel comfortable doing that. True. And, um, you know, to, to add into this and, and to be also, you know, thinking um, about the, and then it was, whether it's the ambivalence, whether it's the lack of um, acknowledgement or respect for the work of mothering, we have the social cultural differences that do come into play when women, as you had pointed out, come to this country and begin doing work for um families um, from a different culture and trying to both accommodate the differences in child rearing and to be learning about those differences while they're also navigating some of the other um, socioeconomic changes between the parents and the nanny as well. That these all coalesce in many ways to be making this a very challenging relationship that parents and nannies create with each other and of course impact the communication as you pointed out, Brenda. Yeah, and and I often think, gosh, wouldn't I love to have been raised in a household where there was more than one language? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a value that yeah. would have added to my whole existence. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happened. And I grew up to adulthood without being fluent in any other language than English. Mm-hmm. You'd have to pay a lot of money to tutor your kid to get languages <laughs> other than English. I, I, uh-huh. mean, I think of all the value on every level yes. that a child care provider in mm-hmm. California brings yes. to the table. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, That's right. And I don't, I don't think we value it nearly deeply enough. It's why I won't do it. Just to, just to be clear, like I had the opportunity to be a nanny for a while. It was very interesting, and it, it was, it was frankly triggering. Elise, I will say this to you, mm-hmm. to be in the parenting role, mm-hmm. being paid. Right. And being paid poorly, yeah. it was a reminder that I was completely unpaid to do it. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> when mm-hmm. I was, you know, as as I was raising my own children and having to work, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big deal. <laughs> it's yeah. a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, having a childcare provider is an essential part of making a family work for most modern families. Essential. Um, chi- Child care in, in some way, shape, or form, if, whether you're paying someone or you're swapping with neighbors or whatever it looks like, because any parent who has to work doesn't have an, doesn't have an option, really. Um, 
And a lot of our listeners are new parents or expecting parents. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the value they might be able to get from us today is if we could walk them through um, the entire process. So let's say we're starting from scratch. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm due to have a baby in six months. When should I start looking for childcare? Um, you know, what are my options? What should I consider? Do I use a contract if I hire a nanny? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what rules do I have to communicate? How do I communicate? Mm-hmm. What should I pay? How should I pay? Mm-hmm. Like these are the practical pieces that I think could be really valuable. And while we're talking about this, I just want to flag that, you know, we're talking as if this is the mother's job (laughs) and not to assume a heterosexist model of marriage Mm -hmm. and parenting, Mm -hmm. but, you know, these are tasks that can be taken on by a person who isn't carrying the pregnancy isn't going to have to give birth to that baby, isn't going to be breastfeeding it full time, et cetera, et cetera. So, so partners out there, this is a parenting job, finding childcare. It doesn't just default <laughs> to the baby haver. <laughs> I hope. No, it's very true. And I appreciate you bringing that up, Sarah, because clearly um, we often think of um, moms um, because most often they have the more emotionally laden relationship with a nanny. Uh, we often think of childcare as being in the, the realm of the mother-nanny um, relationship. Um, but clearly um, there are the other parents, um, whether it's heterosexual, meaning the um, the dad or in a sort of a uh, other uh, LGBT relationship where it may be the same sex other parent, um, clearly they are. And in my experience, very much involved in this process, in this process as well. You just don't often refer to them in the same way that we do the mom. Okay. The person who gives the child. Yeah. I, I would love to kind of walk through sort of in a pragmatic way, um, what a process looks like and, um, and sort of include all of the pieces that you um, have laid out here, because it, it um, as emotionally laden as this decision is, um, having sort of pragmatic um, uh, guidelines can really um, give some can you know help manage this process in a a more um, sort of pragmatic kind of step by step way. Uh, to put um, parents in control of the decisions as they go along. So, you know, I'll just get started with um, where you did, which was the question of when do I get started? You know, you're in the, your, um, you know, second trimester, you um, recognize that um, you may need to have some childcare support after the baby is born. So when do you get started and even how do you get started? Um, you know, in my experience, just to put a stake in the ground, that in order to go through an informed um, search for a childcare provider or a nanny, one should be planning four to six weeks from when you actually need care to start the process. Now, having said that, I've worked with many moms who, in their third trimester, before the baby is born, really want to have childcare lined up right away. 
And for them, it's a way of just feeling that they are not only having things in order when the baby arrives, but for others also, it's kind of a pragmatic step as well. Because as you all know so well, once the baby is here, then time takes a very different, um, it looks very different. You know, the point, <laughs> it's not nine to five anymore or seven to seven as it might be in the workplace. You know, it's a 24 and seven hour job and it goes by way too quickly. So a lot of moms do choose to start in the third trimester and go through a process and have somebody under contract for when they actually need care after the baby is born. For others, it's more, let me think, get things ready to start a process before the baby is born, meaning making all of the important decisions so that when it's time, four to six weeks before I actually need care, then some of these important decisions have already been made, and then it's just a matter of implementing the plan, so to speak, when it's needed. So regardless of whether a mom chooses before or after the baby is born, then I strongly recommend, you know, I'll say four to six weeks, but if you can give yourself six weeks, then all the better. The process itself, time-wise, tends to go like this. For the certainly the very first week, important decisions are being made that will inform um, the basically the job description and the process itself. Um, once those decisions are made, then of course getting the word out to the universe, so to speak, whether it's online, whether it's through your own personal social media, or if it's through mom's groups that you're part of, then getting that word out that happens in the very first week. And then, of course, doing all of the important screening takes a good week to two weeks of time. Um, in my experience over the years, regardless of whether it was, you know, putting na- getting names off of a bulletin board that was just stuck up there on a post-it note, or now, whether it's through sort of the big universe of, mom's groups or um, care.com sites, then, you know, 10% of the people that you hear from meet basic requirements. So it is time consuming to kind of pare down from what can be 50 or 60 uh, people you'll hear from to get to the five or six that really, as I say, meet basic requirements. And those basic requirements come out of the job description that you've created early on. And I'll circle back to talk about what goes into that job description um, after I go through the process timeline. So, again, now you're well into the end of the second week, and ideally you have, at that point in time, done a good pre-screening and made decisions to be meeting with those four or five candidates that you feel are good people to be meeting. And then you're into the interview process. I say process because clearly nobody should ever, ever, ever be hiring somebody after the first date. So there are two interviews. <laughs> but, you know, the first one is a come up somewhat more formal interview. Um, and from that formal interview, there are decisions to go into a second interview, which is less formal. And second interviews are typically with two out of those five that you have met. And then out of that second interview comes the selection of one who would go into a one but ideally a two-week trial period. And that trial period really 
is uh, scheduled and paid, but it's considered to be a training period. It's not just, hello, how are you, and um, I want you to be my nanny, period. It's a time where you're really taking the time side by side to help your nanny understand who your child is, how things go around the home, where they are, and of course, within the community or within the neighborhood. And during the trial period is when you are putting together a contract based on what you've agreed on. And then at that point, go at the end of the trial period, assuming that goes well, then both parent and nanny have a contract that they have um, signed. And um, I strongly recommend there is some uh, additional training on how to handle medical emergencies, um, police and fire, of course, as well as disaster preparedness. And then you're ready to start. So as you can see, a lot happens during this very short period of time of four to six weeks. And this is assuming that you have uh, made, again, good decisions in the very beginning about what you need and that you're pretty diligent in keeping the process going. Um, all of this, of course, happens when you have a very young person in your life who is new to you and yourself as a mom. And um, so it is a lot. It is a lot. Um, and I, again, um, I think, you know, most parents are um, having to be making a very important decision and go through this kind of process uh, very early on in the very early days of being a new parent and getting to know this person in your life. Um, and it is a lot to ask for. But again, for most parents, returning back to the workforce um, full time means you've got 12 weeks to do that in. So four to six weeks really um, can go by quite quickly. I'd like to suggest, um, I mean, I know you're the expert, at least in, in this. And Glinda, I think, you know, you've had a lot of experience. I think that if I, given all my years of doing postpartum care and working with parents, some of whom are going to have a luxurious, you know, six to 12 months off of work, others who barely get 10 days. And this is um, uh, without regard to their socioeconomic standing. It's how they've planned it or how their workspace has planned it for them. But what I want to note is that if I had given myself that much time to make a decision and I had had the opportunity to interview and have two candidates that I think are worthy, potentially, um, I think I'd want them to both intern with me because it's my experience vis-a-vis -vis my own clients that it's often the case that uh, the person who you've sort of pointed yourself towards and trained can have an issue come up in their lives and after all that processing, not be available. So it occurs to me that if you have the bandwidth and the opportunity to do that trial period with more than one person, that might save you at the 11th hour when you then really have to make the transition. The other thing that I want to make note of is that I'm regularly suggesting to parents, 
albeit with almost no safety net to, to help them with, that they consider um, what I like to call a mother's helper, which I realize is sexist language, but that that in the transition between when partner goes back to work and mom goes back to work, uh, that it might not be healthy and appropriate for mom to be spending the greater portion of the daylight hours 100% in charge of a small person. That what I see so often is that that person's personal care does not get attended to because they're constantly attending to the care of a child. So I'm often suggesting that people consider the possibility of hiring somebody at the juncture when the other parent or parents begin back to work with the idea that that role of mother's helper will eventually evolve perhaps into the role of a more full-time nanny. So I'm just saying that out loud because this is how I roll in my work with my clients. And I'm curious, Glinda and uh, Elise, like, What's your experience with any of that? What suggestions might you have? I'll jump in here and uh, quickly say that um, the training period, and I'll start where you started um, about um, having going through um, a training with two nannies in order to ensure that it's not only the right person for you, um, but also that you don't get left without um, anyone at all. If one, if the person that you start with doesn't work out, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, and some of the families, or many of the families that I work with, do choose to go that route. It all really does depend on the mom's not only her time, but in some ways her emotional um, um, state at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the moms that I with oftentimes feel quite overwhelmed with going through a training process with one person. Um, and if there are two, then it, it seems it's hard for them to be able to, um, to both find the time as well as to go through the, what can be a very stressful um, day, training somebody, explaining things to them and, um, and um, getting and, and really acting as a really a mentor to this person and trainer. So a lot of them do something that's kind of a midway point, which is to go through a trial period with one, um, and then have that other quote unquote uh, plan B person know that um, they're very interested, and if things don't work out, then they would definitely want to call on them and. Generally, what I find is that after two or three days with someone, moms know whether it's going mm-hmm. to be the right person or not. So that that's kind of a good point. Yeah. I think it's true. Yeah. So that Plan B person is actually um, not in limbo, and um, 
and waiting, but more likely that very quickly after the trial starts, mom, if need be, um, reverts to um, her plan B option and mm-hmm. doesn't lose that uh, person to perhaps someone else. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> Having somebody help you when your um, partner returns back to work and not having to be getting the kind of support that you need. So it's not all just you and not having the, the, um, really the personal time that one needs, um, in order to be, um, attending to this, uh, this little person all the time. Um, oftentimes what Esther used at this role so often, and I know Glenda has as well, is that they, Get somebody who is trained just in the very postpartum month to be taking on that role with them and mm-hmm. to um, be coming in, you know, four to six hours a day or maybe three days a week for that period of time to give mom um, the break that she needs to um, take care of herself without the full responsibility for the baby. And so oftentimes they... Uh, postpartum doulas and newborn care specialists step into that role uh, during that transition period. And they play a huge vital role. And I'll let certainly Esther and Linda be speaking to how they do fit that beautiful role with families, but oftentimes um, if um, that extra person who comes in during that transition period can be filled by someone that has that type of experience or training. Well, I will just say that my particular postpartum practice is very specific to the first two weeks, and I'm really focusing on uh, mother care, healing, and recovery. So while I'm very supportive and caring of the family in that period, um, my aim is to help parents become the parents that they're becoming. And I don't do childcare per se, but I am somebody who is very frequently recommending that parents think about a transitional doula um, and or nanny, however that care provider identifies themselves. Uh, This term, which is new to me, called newborn care specialist Um, that they be thinking about that transitional person who's flexible in their support, meaning they're willing to make mom lunch. They're willing to do an errand. They're willing to do childcare while mom naps, showers, takes the yoga class, whatever it is for self-care and isn't just focused only on childcare. So that's my recommendation to parents. I don't fill that role per se. Uh, so Glinda, you would be the person who might have better experience with this kind of transitional role. Right. Um, that's what I'm currently focused on, being a newborn care specialist. And a term that you might be more familiar with is um, a night nanny, but legally you're not allowed to say that you are a profession that you don't have a license in, which is why the term has come about 
newborn care specialist as opposed to night nanny. So primarily what I'm doing for many of my families is I come in for the first three months and I'm there from 10 o'clock at night until night, sorry, until six in the morning. And I care for the baby at night. If mom wants to breastfeed, I bring her the baby. She breastfeeds, which you know is relatively short period. Then after that, I birth the baby, resettle the baby, and and with the baby until the next feed. After a while, many mothers want to skip feeding the baby by breast and have me feed the baby a bottle, and that's what I do. And then there are other families who even when you're starting – They want the baby bottle fed at night. So if that's what the parent chooses, then that's what I do. But I also help parents who are new parents and want help in the daytime. So when you do that, then you um, care for the baby and encourage mom to rest, encourage mom to eat. And um, I don't do the whole family which is what usually the postpartum doula does. So there's a little difference in that, that the newborn care specialist is focused primarily on the baby and a postpartum doula focuses on care of the whole family. But that doesn't mean that we neglect the mom. If mom needs assistance with breastfeeding or other assistance, we're there to encourage and support her in whatever way she needs. One of the other things that you mentioned um, was that many nannies are poorly paid, and that is true. (laughs) But there's another side of that, that especially educated career nannies are paid very well, often paid very well. So it's a broad spectrum of people that do this kind of work, from people who Um, have very little education in early childhood care or infant brain development, as opposed to people who have taken a lot of courses and have a lot of experience, is the other end of the spectrum. And that also comes up when you talk about what do you charge. So normally you would pay somebody with more experience a higher salary, which is one of the reasons with through the nonprofit that we're encouraging nannies to become more educated because it also will translate into them being able to ask a higher salary. I am curious that you said the word salary because, again, I'm going to go back to the really practical kinds of stuff that might be on people's minds because there's the per hour or salary model. I think that's an open question for a lot of people. And then there's also um, questions around using a contract and then paying over or under the table. And I mean, I'm just going to say it like (laughs) um, most people pay under the table from what I've seen based on anecdotal conversations I've had with other people who are parents. And um, there are lots of reasons why um, both parents and I think childcare providers are okay with that. Obviously, that's not what the IRS wants, but um, it'd be good to know, kind of just from the from everyone's perspectives. Like, you know, w- what is the difference? I mean, if you pay someone over the table, it costs a lot more, right? There's taxes involved. Um, the nanny might not see as much cash in their hand, a- and of course, there's co- that the whole thing is compounded by this idea of of the, the profession being underpaid to start with. So. You know, people have this 
these low prices anchored in their mind of what a nanny should be paid. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, they're like, yeah, and I don't want to pay taxes either. I mean, it's just yeah, I know. <laughs> the expectations okay. are all over the map. They are. They are. Yeah. Um, see, let me speak to some of this, um, this very, very important um, question about what does it cost and what are my legal responsibilities and what's sort of the street-wise version of all of this. So, <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, we can we can talk about what you're expected to do, and we can also talk about really what happens out there and the, um, the day-to-day lives of parents and nannies and families and nannies. So I'll start with, you know, what what's the legal responsibilities? And what's the law? So the Department of Labor... Um, in 2015, made it a law that nannies are hourly wage employees. And as such, they are required to be paid for all hours worked, and that includes overtime. Overtime in California is over nine hours in a day, or over 40 hours in a week. Um, so that's the law. Now, what happens in the day-to-day lives of parents and nannies? Well, as you have pointed out, the vast majority of parents do not pay taxes on childcare. Now, if you were to ask me this question, I'd say four years ago, I would say that number probably came to about 90%. Mm-hmm. More recently, I'm seeing those numbers kind of go down. That what I'm seeing is that more and more of the parents are looking to be paying taxes on childcare. And I'll say, here, certainly in the Bay Area, a lot of them are willing to be doing some kind of a creative arrangement on the tax issue and paying part taxable and part non-taxable income. And the reason for all of this, um, this sort of um, what happens in the real world between families and nannies um, and what compared to what is expected of them, um, historically, it comes out of the, the reality that um, nannies have always been seen as operating in the gray market, even though, and because they've been unlicensed and unregulated, then it has brought into the market women who have um, come without and currently don't have documentation to work, and others who are um, wanting are want to be paid. Um, cash only because it improves quote unquote not only their net income but because they can be so poorly paid then it gives them an opportunity to be able to raise their own families certainly living in a geographic proximity to their employer or even outside to be able to be commuting into the city to be able to work so having net income has been their way of being able to be doing the work that they do. Parents, of course, have their own reasons for paying non-taxable or cash only. And one is because um, paying taxable income reduces the pool of available applicants. Um, those nannies who um, want to and really do need to be working on a cash-only basis um, won't work for them. And then the other reason is that, as you had pointed out, it, uh, for some families, it is cumbersome, and um, 
expenses to be paying taxable income. Setting up an account, managing the payroll account um, is above and beyond all of what they are expected to do. And then um, lastly, um, they have to gross up in order to be paying or giving a nanny what she would otherwise get if she were working for a family that only paid cash only. So it's more expensive. And for both of those reasons, many parents decide, hey, look, you know, I'm going to base my decision on who to hire, not on whether I'm in compliance with tax laws, but on quality. And um, opening the pool up of candidates to be making decisions based on who would be the right person to be taking care of my child as compared to am I in compliance with tax laws. So we have now um, this very um, cumbersome um, question that parents have to face. You know, will I hire somebody first and foremost who is here documented to work legally? And then secondly, you know, am I going to be, how am I going to be in compliance with tax laws? And often, you know, parents have to be making a very difficult decision for themselves about whether they will or they will not be in compliance. Um, and as we see from the percentages out there, quote unquote, on the street, most parents make the decision to hire based on best fit or based on quality rather than based on being in compliance with tax law. Can I just um, play devil's advocate here, though, and say that um, the thing that we might be leaving out about all this, and I and I believe me, you know, I understand the the need the need um, when when it arises seemingly to work on a cash basis right like it is it is a temptation for many many good and sometimes absolute necessary uh, reasons and the person who is working on that basis is also making themselves very vulnerable when they are already vulnerable. Let's not forget that in this country, people who work on that basis are often cheated out of their hours and, and, and what they work for. And I'm not implicating parents here. I'm just saying that it does happen. And those people, women in particular, have no recourse. So when parents are concerned about the extra work that they might incur helping somebody who might not be documented and legal currently to work, helping them become documented and legal to work, uh, they're doing the right thing. If it can be done, they are doing the right thing. Uh, in supporting a person who would otherwise be quite vulnerable. It's just a perspective. It's just my perspective. But I do want to say, you know, when when I have families coming to me talking about, you know, how do I hire a nanny? I'm not the expert. By far, at least you have way more experience with all of this. But I do come from a place of being very concerned. You know, I'm not I'm not ruling out that that hiring someone who's undocumented isn't a great option for both parties. But I also want to point to the fact that it's also can be a very vulnerable situation for the person 
who's undocumented. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Esther, you're absolutely right. Um, it does give the nanny, um, it puts them in a very vulnerable position in a lot of different ways. Um, just, just on a practical basis, they're not eligible for what they would otherwise get if they were through taxable income, whether it's unemployment, whether it's disability, and of course, social security. And the unfortunate reality is we are seeing women who have been paid under the table who are now well into their 50s and or 60s really have no recourse and they become, um, you know, less marketable or um, you know, employable as they age. So yeah, how are they going to retire? That's exactly how are right. they going to retire? It's, it's really, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, part of this, of course, is, um, you know, wanting um, nannies to see their work as professional, and that includes being in compliance and managing their budgets in a way that they are in compliance as well. Um, so I'm 100% behind. This is the part of the work that you do. Sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. Elise. This is the part of the work that you do that I so admire. I really do. I just think that um, taking on the responsibility of helping women understand their value <laughs> and be in so-called compliance so that they can value themselves when maybe nobody else will, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, for the work that they do, not only in the present, but for their own futures is Mm -hmm. brilliant. And I really appreciate you for it. So carry on. Tell us how you do it. (laughs) Well, you know, the, um, I think the, my role with, with nannies and with families really is to be taking the time so people can make an informed decision because I, firmly, firmly believe that good care happens when parents and nannies work together. And that means that parents and nannies have to start their relationship in the very beginning um, where there's an open dialogue and open communication um, about all of these important issues, whether it has to do with money, whether it has to do with how my child is being cared for, whether it has to do with valuing the relationships that nannies do create not only with the parent in order to provide good care, but with the child itself. And really giving not only due recognition to that, but valuing that relationship in such a way that mom or the parent themselves don't, doesn't impede that from happening. Um, so, you know, being able to think with nannies and to be able to you know, really, in some ways, raise their awareness because so, so many of them come into this work or have been doing this work for so long where they haven't been getting the recognition that they themselves don't value what they know or what they do or even how they do it. And it plays itself out in the very, very beginning of their, whether it's during the interview process, whether it's during the discussions on how they will be paid or what they will be paid. And of course, as they begin their relationship with the parent and with the family, it plays out that way as well with not being able to feel that, again, what they have observed or what they um, know uh, about this child has uh, really either meaning or is even worth having a discussion with the parent about. So mm-hmm. being able to have nannies be um, seeing themselves um, as certainly um 
professionals in the child care workforce and having some value and having value, it has to start there. As well as, of course, not only informing parents about the value and the importance of the relationship they have with their nanny to provide good care for their child, but to be having parents really sort of when push comes to shove, act out what they say. Um, it's a long road ahead, um, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, we've decades of, um, of, um, you know, having nannies be working closely with families where this recognition hasn't happened. And clearly, whether it's, you know, even what the government not licensing, regulating nannies, that's one thing. But when you get down to professional child care organizations, whether it's the National Association for the Education of the Young Child or Zero to Three, are child care aware, all of these national organizations that get federal funding in the billions, millions of dollars, billions, um, to support childcare workers, none of that gets translated to care by nanny. So it's a travesty all the way around, and that's the mm-hmm. point. But being able to get nannies to themselves in a very grassroots way, be able to say, you know, what I do has meaning, what I know has value, and that, you know, having them be able to do that, even if it, as it translates into the, you know, it, get back to the discussion on compensation and how they're paid. That all has to happen. And unfortunately, it's a slow process, but I think it does need to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hopefully part of the culture change we're seeking. And I, I want to just reiterate, Elise and Glinda, I'm so impressed that you're part of doing this work because it wasn't being done so far as I could tell. So Elise and Glenda, I consider my nanny to be my daughter's second mom. She is part of our family and we love her so much. And, you know, I think that sort of personally for me echoes a lot of what we've talked about today in in terms of value. And I actually asked her to look through your book and come up with some of the topics that she, um, that she found very interesting for people to take into consideration. So I want to share that with you. And um, one of them we already talked about, which is just uh, making sure parents really know the difference between over and under the table pay and how choosing one or the other either costs them quite a bit more money than they may have been planning to pay or puts themselves and the nanny at risk with the IRS. Mm -hmm. So we covered Mm -hmm. that. The other thing was um, having really clear household expectations. Mm-hmm. So she really liked the example of Susie's story on page 163 of, of your book, The Nanny Manual. Mm-hmm. You know, having parents say on day one, feel free to eat anything in the house except the alcohol, of course. Um, and that gave a very clear boundary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that same family called her um, crying when their new nanny took the kids out and had a few beers. So they mm-hmm. fired her on the spot and... Um, this nanny filled in for a few days until they could find a replacement. But she had the feeling that that nanny may not have understood that by saying anything except the alcohol meant no drinking on the job, really. Um, versus <laughs> no drinking in the house. <laughs> versus she, you know, she may have just thought it was, you know, don't drink what's in the house, uh, which is really different. So it's about clear household expectations. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously, um, both the parent and the nanny have to come to an agreement about what is expected. And what we see here, um, certainly in the Bay Area, is that, and again, prioritizing according to importance, is that, you know, nanny's responsibilities are to do everything related to the care of the child, feeding, bathing, changing, taking the child off the daily walk, 
and um, also doing any housekeeping related to the child's care. So making sure that his upper room was clean, laundry was done, bed linens changed, clean and put away, as well as making sure that the house stays in the same order as it usually is. Um, being able to run errands if they're out with a baby and the family needs something real as an example to pick up at the local grocery store. So these are the basic standards. And if parents want anything over and above that, such as laundry for the family or cooking meals for the family, that needs to be made explicit. So these are standards. They have to be in the contract. It has to be agreed upon. But I think to your manager's question, in addition to that, you know, parents have to know that just as it is when they're with a child all day, no two days are the same. So if mom gets home and the laundry hasn't gotten done, but the baby's been sick, then, um, and the baby's been clean and healthy, et cetera, then it's really not, please, don't go on the nanny's, um, don't get upset that the laundry should have been done at the same time. Um, Nicely said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and if you have, um, I know the book has a lot more detail here, but just, you know, how, how to set those clear expectations, I think, is you've kind of mentioned the importance of communication. So it's like, what was your tip, a fast tip for setting those clear household expectations? Is it writing a, it down? If you have a contract that is essential, and I know Esther had brought that up in the very beginning, I meant to address that. Definitely, every, you need to have a contract. and in that contract outlines certainly all of the expected responsibilities in very clear ways, as well as, of course, compensation, benefits, and um, use of, you know, privacy, confidentiality, and then just basic rules of the house. And those rules clearly include where your child goes during the day, who is allowed to come into the home, um, making sure that your child's never left unattended, and, of course, never to be going in anyone else's car, anyone else home, or as you had pointed out earlier, to a bar in the middle of the day so your nanny can have a beer. I mean, all of that um, <laughs> needs to be made quite explicit as quote-unquote rules of the house. Um, and when a parent and nanny sit down together and go over, you know, either, whether it's line by line or by section, what the expectations are between the two of them, then it really does set an expectation that this is the employer you are the employee, we have some clear expectations that we're both obligated to. And when something happens down line where there is some misunderstanding, then you've got something on record and you've had an experience together where you are able to then say, you know, uh, we agreed upon this. Do we need to revisit this? Do we need to make it clearer? But you've got a foundation on which to have a discussion about what is a misunderstanding that often does come up over the course of working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Do you have a template that you'd be willing to share with us and our listeners that we could post on our website? Yeah, absolutely. I can send you that, of course. But um, listeners can also just go to our website, org, and download all of the forms and checklists, including a sample contract um, from our website as well. And um, everything is there. Yeah. That's fantastic. So much nicer to start with something. We also, on our website, we we, um, posted a a birth plan or birth intentions document, as some people call it. So I think arming (laughs) arming parents with something to start with that they can edit is so, so helpful. Um, And then just the last thing quickly is just, uh, you know, my nanny was talking about um, 
the importance of having a reliable backup, whether it's grandparents, mm-hmm. other friends with kids, other nannies, or parents with flexible work schedules, just someone so that the nanny doesn't um, feel hostage, so that, like there's no one else to care for the child who they grow to love, you know, if they have an yeah. emergency and or a vacation. An alternative or, if they're sick. Yeah, yeah, if they have a doctor's appointment, you know, it's important that um, child care providers have the ability to take care of their needs too. That's true. And that, that is so, so essential, particularly if, as we often see here, you know, it's 50 hour a week. That's the basic work schedule, which is a lot. And we all know parents can be running late or they need some date night or they want some help on evenings or otherwise weekends. Um, having backup care is essential as well as, and I will say this, um, Janine is bringing up, um, sort of how do I fit this in sort of practically? But I think oftentimes nannies need to have the uh, permission to be able to say thank you, but no. Because oftentimes they feel obligated to be doing this addition, taking on these additional hours. And then we end up with a, a sort of very subtle either resentment or clearly burnout. So giving your nanny permission to be saying thank you, but no, is just as important as having that backup piece in place. I think the language of that is so critical. When somebody who has a child that you care for and about says to you, I need a babysitter on Wednesday night, you know, that's not the same as saying to the same person, might you be available Wednesday night? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a very different kind of messaging. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, and I think parents are responsible to talk like that, you know. Yeah. Well, great. Um, We've talked a little bit about your nonprofit, the Institute for Families and Nannies. I started, um, and along with a lot of my colleagues, and and Glenda has been super, super instrumental in this as well. Um, I started a nonprofit called the Institute for Families and Nannies, and our mission is to establish a recognizable standard of care and best practices to support parents and nannies to provide the best care for children. Um, we, to get to be doing that, we have started uh, professional development, um, education training for nannies, and um, that has been um, twofold. One is a year-long um, infant toddler caregiver training program, um, that's being provided by a national organization called WestEd and their affiliate partner, um, PITC, Partners for Infant Toddler Care. And um, nannies meet um, monthly and um, go through this training program and at the end, of course, get certification of attendance and um, infant toddler caregivers. The other is a, a grassroots model that we're using to um, start up next September. Uh, monthly um, workshops for nannies that cover a range of topics, whether it's uh, creating portfolios all the way to brain development, um, infant toddler care, of course, uh, communication with parents, literacy, um, and um, discipline, et cetera, et cetera. So these programs, these workshops will be uh, facilitated by nannies that have an expertise in a certain area and with our support. Um, our our expectation is that through this tra- these training programs and to be doing this in partnership with parents is to um, both professionalize is to 
professionalize the industry in a way that gives nannies um, not only to be part of a cohort of others who are doing work that they do um, and learn from each other, but of course to be doing mentorship as well as um, career development to support those nannies who may want to move into different parts of their work and not having to be doing either all or even some of the direct care. So um, it's our, our, and of course we're doing advocacy as well to professionalize the industry and getting the word out about nannies and the valuable work that they do. Linda, it sounds like it's an, it's an empowerment model where the nannies are taking charge of their extensive knowledge and experience and bringing it forward to support other nannies. And I just want to really appreciate you and jumping on board with Elise to do this work. It is very important to me. Um, I think that children are so valuable and it's such a precious time well, there's an emphasis on three-year-olds and up, like with Head Start, but so much mm-hmm. goes on between zero and three that many people have not been aware of or have not focused on, but we've become more educated in how to help our little ones develop their brains. And it's a passion of mine and being able to work with people who also find it important is um, so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. My mother was uh, executive director of Head Start when I was a teenager wow. <laughs> and into my uh, many years of wow. my young adult life. So wow. I, I appreciate the Head Start model. And I recognize that there was a, you know, infancy gap <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah. Well, we want to thank you, Elise, and you, Glenda, for your time today and for your contribution to the childcare profession and to parents, to all of our listeners around the world. Um, check out the Nanny Manual. Um, it's a new book that Elise has published and um, has authored. And we are big fans of the book, and we are so happy to have had you both as guests today. So thank you again. Thank you very much, both of you, Sarah and Esther, for allowing us to have this conversation with you. Very important, and from the bottom of our hearts, most appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again, bicycle man I know you're doing all that you can I wrote the song, simple and true I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you You got your wheels, you got your gears you ride around town without any fear You got your pedals, you got your brakes You always wear your helmet for safety's sake